to episode 10 of Texting, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. Hey. Today we have a guest with us, uh, Christopher M. Park, who is CTO of StarterDev.com. He's started an AI games company called Arkan. Uh, he's a blogger about AI. Um, he's got a degree in business. He's a science fiction writer and a digital artist. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Did I get all of that right? Yeah, that's all good. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Sounds impressive prefer- when you say it that way, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that's all. Well, um, so do you prefer Chris or Christopher? Uh, either's fine. Chris is good. <laughs> okay. Um, so I, I initially stumbled across um, uh, your blog. You had, there was, um, I think it was called, you had an article called Designing Emergent AI, and it, was, it popped up on Hacker News maybe a month ago or something. And it was a three-part series, which I found really interesting. And you discussed um, how you developed um, Emergent AI for your, uh, your game called AI War. And, uh, you know, that's one thing I'd like to get into. Uh, we, maybe we can kind of jump into that in a minute. Maybe we just create a little context for that. But um, it's a very, very cool stuff. But so first, let's say, let's say this. So you have a game, an independent game company that you started that, which is what your, this game is uh, built in or, or built under is, is this game? Is this? Uh, yes. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I, I uh, had been coding the game for a good number of months uh, and working on the engine for uh, about a year and a half before I actually started the company. But then uh, uh, basically started the company as a way to, <laughs> you know, protect liability and all that sort of stuff for this thing that I've been creating for a while. So now is it just you or do you have anybody else helping you out? Um, it's just it's just me as far as, uh, you know, owners and so forth go. We don't have any outside funding as far as employees go. Um, even I'm not actually technically an employee there. Um, we have some contractors. I always use the plural we, uh, you know, as a company, but uh, the uh, composer Pablo Vega that uh, works with us and then uh, uh, Lars Bull, who's a uh, another game designer, uh, he and I are working on a, a puzzle game at this point, and he was also really helpful in uh, some of the final polish of the existing uh, products. But other than that, it's just me. <laughs> yeah, one thing, um, just, just about the game itself, the AI game, maybe I'm, maybe I'm skipping ahead, but it's, it's an incredibly interesting concept. So it's uh, multiplayers against an, one AI. I mean, in fact, can, sorry, let, I'll, I'll stand back. Can you describe the game to us, please? Sure, absolutely. Um, it's basically a real-time strategy game like, you know, most everything else in that in that genre. The thing is, most of the games in that genre pit, uh, they have a single-player campaign that probably pits you against some kind of scripted uh, scenarios. And then they've got a multiplayer offering, which usually does have AI, but it's usually fairly non-impressive. And uh, the real focus tends to be on, you know, players playing against other players and they get these competitive leagues and that's where you get all the StarCraft stuff in Korea and all that sort of thing. Um, with There seems to be a pretty good market, though, for games where people play together instead of always fighting against one another. Yeah, that's actually a really interesting uh, uh, thing. I mean, I, had, I I'm not a big gamer. I used to play um, Command and Conquer back in the '90s with a couple of my buddies, and we would get really pissed off <laughs> at one another. You know, we would play for hours, and we would just, you know, you'd end up getting angry because you know you'd spend hours, two or three hours on a game, and you know, fighting it out, and you know, 
afterwards going to lunch and kind of arguing about this or that. And, you know, it kind of got your blood up a little bit. It wasn't collaborative. So this idea that you guys, you know, you can have two or more of your friends or family, whoever, and say, hey, we're going to take on this, you know, this danger, this AI or whatever and fight together. That's actually, I think, a kind of a good idea. So the, the AI is controlling sort of 30,000 ships, do I understand correctly? And then the humans are controlling 30,000. Is that the way it works or how does it sort of hang together? Um, that's usually, that's kind of our tagline for uh, total number of ships in the game. Uh, most our real-time strategy games t top out around 10,000 ships or so. And really a lot of times that's in extreme cases in in your average like age of empires three or something like that the more really recent uh endeavors from uh, the triple a developers they've got um you know maybe 500 ships uh as a cap per player that they might have so you're looking at extremely low uh <clears throat> numbers of units but really micromanaging those guys around um 30, ships is actually pretty on the low end for what we have um, we can actually simulate, you know, over 100,000 in there, um, and the bigger multiplayer games often get up in the 50, 60k mark. Um, individual players, you know, are routinely ordering around, you know, several hundred to a couple of thousand ships at one go, which is like a whole game's worth of <laughs> uh, units from another another game. But uh, well, something yeah. that I thought would be kind of cool would be if. If if your game, your your AI, which commands a hundred thousand ships, if somehow you could get it so that your AI could be pitched against a hundred thousand humans, <laughs> then it would be like Terminator: Rise of the Machines. It would really be man against machine on a large scale. Oh, so you like design your own AI kind of thing? Okay. Well, just just basically, his 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 AI is. Oh, um, I see. I see. It is okay. taking on. So in other words, it's it's like one AI taking on the rest of humanity. Oh, oh, so you're talking about the game design, the, the game's AI, Chris's AI. You know yeah, what yeah, exactly, Chris's AI, yeah. So it would be like a World of Warcraft or something in the sense that you have all these people logging the central server and they're all beating on this AI that's taking over the universe. Exactly. Fighting this all-powerful AI. Yeah. That's definitely a very interesting concept. would require a lot more uh, development resources than I really have <laughs> at my own disposal, but... But yeah, that could be a very cool, uh, massive concept there for like an MMO type game. I like that a lot, actually. But you know, that's actually very cool. But let me, I mean, the fact that you what you created, you created more or less on your own, it sounds like. I mean, that's impressive as it is. Um, yep. So, uh, I, I mean, I just want to get a sense of how is it that one guy goes and creates a game like this all by himself? I mean, you create the gaming engine, the AI, the artwork. I mean, did you do everything? Uh, as far as the artwork goes, that's actually um, some of it I did, and a lot of it is most of it is uh, by Daniel Cook, who um, I don't know if you remember from the early '90s game called Tyrion. Um, he did the graphics for that. It was a uh, shooter type game, which back then meant like spaceships flying in 2D and so forth. And uh, so he released uh, the graphics from Tyrion and a few other projects that he'd been working on that, that didn't actually make it into full games for free uh -huh. a number of years ago. So a lot of the indie uh, developers, myself included, taken uh, great advantage of that uh, resource and then have you know basically modified those and you know built whole games on top of that. So, so it's just um, a free but, graphics library or, uh, that you could just use yourself as a gamer? Um, yeah, definitely. Um, there's not really enough in there for a real-time strategy game. It's not geared towards that, so it requires a lot of editing to uh, to really turn it into what 
you see in AI War, but uh, a lot of people, so, some people who remember the game Tyrion, which was quite popular back in the day, have have noted and said, "Hey, these are the same graphics. Hey, neat." <laughs> so you use right. that graphic set as the base, and then you may, I don't know, copy and paste, and you'll extend it in certain places, shorten it in certain places, and and maybe use the 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 eyedrop. Now, what's that tool? The sort of um, the one that lets you cr take a pattern and then sort of move it along. Is that the way you the, do it? little uh, yeah, stamp thing or whatever yeah exactly yeah. that's that sort of thing and you can you know make uh, multiple levels of one ship out of things like that adding on extra guns or you know whatever you need to do cool. to make it look a little bit different but just kind of like an upgraded version of it and and that sort of thing which you know um there's a lot more ships in ai war than were originally in the graphics library so you know obviously having to do you know oh, a lot of attention that. to detail but well, you're an artist yourself, Christopher, right? I mean, you've so right. you're a little not more. Not too much a 2D artist. Yeah, yeah, I'm not too much of a 2D artist, but I, I do pretty well. I'm quite accustomed to you know Photoshop and all that sort of thing. Uh, most of my art is for static images in 3D, not really uh, game level images uh, or or models rather, which require you know uh, much lower uh, polygon count, which uh, that's not something I'm really all that familiar with or, or have a whole lot of interest in. I, I tend to go right. for the more realistic static stuff. But um, um, the, the, okay, but in terms of the rest of the game, though, the actual programming, I mean, did you write all the code yourself? Yep, every last bit of it. Um, the, oh. uh, it runs on top of the SlimDX library, which, interestingly, um, that's, uh, it turns out we're the first commercial uh, game being sold on top of that. There's some other commercial software that's not games that's using that, but it's basically a C-sharp wrapper for uh, DirectX, and uh, it's really good. And uh, I've actually written a blog article about you know why I chose that. Um, but uh, could you give a so, quick uh, quick overview of that? I, I read that article, and you were originally were using what MDX? But uh, yeah, right. Right, exactly. Managed DirectX, MDX was something that Microsoft put out, you know, a number of years ago. Um, I guess in the, the early 2000s, I don't remember. I was using it back in 2002, 2003, and then, you know, onwards. But um, they put out, um, I think, two iterations of Managed DirectX and then said, okay, we're done with that now. Uh, now we're going to create this thing called XNA, which is a, a newer framework, newer in the last, I guess, two, three years. And um, it supports both uh, the XNA supports both the uh, Xbox 360 as well as the uh, uh, PC. And there's a lot of good things about it, but it's also the Xbox hardware is much more limited than PC hardware. Uh -huh. So the XNA framework by nature uh, carries all of those same limitations. And there's some really hokey stuff in there about like how audio is stored. You like can't compress it and it has to be in this weird format. And so, you know, right. it makes your, your distributable file like 10 times larger than it really should be. And but um, if, if you went with XNA, then wouldn't you be able to release your software on, on Xbox in, in more easily? Yeah, um, but I'm not really too interested with this particular game in doing that just because it really, really, really requires a mouse. And I also am not really sure that the Xbox hardware is going to be up to this. Um, okay. The PlayStation 3 could probably do it, maybe, but it's 
really a, a pretty niche PC genre and really requires a specific sort of CPU architecture and so forth that you get over here with the multiple cores and you know that sort of thing. Um, I, I intend to probably use XNA at some point to port other games to the Xbox. It's a great platform for that purpose, um, but I don't think I would use it for PC development too much. Right. What's so the the, this this game. Oh, I'm sorry. Go on. Uh, oh, and I was just wondering what the price point of the game was. Uh, it's twenty dollars. Um, so it's a lot lower than most of the other uh, competing, you know, AAA titles, which you know makes sense because they've got you know huge teams and giant budget and you know much more impressive art in a lot of ways. Uh, right. You know, ours is nice, but it's you know fairly old school. And uh, so you know, I felt like that was pretty good. Some of our other like basically indie games that are um, similar in style, I guess. Uh, they range between twenty and thirty dollars. We went at the low end just because it's with something that's multiplayer. If if you've got a family and they want to play together or something, uh, you know, having to shell out <laughs> for multiple copies of a sixty dollar game, for instance, which I've yeah. had to do in the past to play like Neverwinter Nights or something, that that hurts. You've got to really like the game to do that. So I uh, felt like it was a little bit more palatable. You know, you can get three copies of this game for you know one pr the price of one, uh, you know, big budget title, and then you know. I get the sense you're not really doing it to become a millionaire though. Uh, from this particular game, it's more. This is more like a proving ground. Am I? Would I be right in thinking that? Or. Um. Well. Uh, yeah, it's a proving ground. I mean, originally I coded it for the, the prime reason that I coded it was um, I have a weekly uh, RTS session with uh, my dad and my uncle and uh, one of my uncle's colleagues. And, uh, you know, my dad, my uncle and I have been doing this for, I don't know, 10, 11 years now uh, since the original Age of Empires. And, um, you know, so we've played through dozens of, of RTS games and we always play cooperatively against the AI. You know, uh, we don't really like the, the competitive aspect. So we would basically play through a game until we got to the point where, we really knew what we were doing. The AI was no longer a challenge. And yep. then it's like, well, okay, it's time to buy another game, right? And um, so that game would be interesting until you really know what you're doing. And then once you're confident, it's time, you're done, you know? Yeah. Um, so I, I decided to create a game, you know, for us to play with exactly the sort of styling that we would want uh, with all the, you know, better mechanics from the more recent games that we've been playing uh, otherwise, um, just, you know, to entertain ourselves. And then, as it started turning out better, it's like, well, you know, I've been wanting to do, you know, game development as a, you know, as a potential business. So let's see how this goes. Um, so, you know, we'll, well, we'll see how that's it goes. Like that's very much in line with a, a lot of these web startups happen is that people are solving their own sort of pain. They're, they're solving their own problem. They say, okay, this sucks or this is painful. Or, I really wish this happened. They just create it. So you did the same thing. It's like, instead of creating like a, a new to-do list or something, you know, you're like, I'm going to create my own real-time strategy game, right? Right. It's I exactly mean. the same sort of thing. Yeah. And the company that I, the other company that I uh, work for that I'm the CTO at started development, um, you know, that started from much the same sort of uh, uh, need. I wasn't there when that was founded. I came in about eight months later, but uh, that was back in 2001. But, uh, you know, the founder's father was a, real estate developer that was having some specific problems and couldn't get anybody else to uh, solve them for him. And uh, the founder has his own other software company. So he decided to 
uh, called Eagle Vision, and he decided to found a new one called Star Development and solve that problem, and been going ever since. But yeah, right. I think that is very common. <laughs> so, so for um for the for our is it is Ark um Arkin Games is that how you pronounce it? Yep, that's right. Arkin. Arkin. So is is it the kind of thing that you think like maybe three six. 12 months from now, you might be at a point where you wouldn't necessarily have to work a day job, or is it still just going to be really just sort of like a supplemental income? Um, that's a good question. I mean, it really depends on how well AI War does, and we've got a couple other games that we're working on. I don't think they have quite as much mm, commercial potential, but I could be wrong. Just because there's so much that's unique about AI War, it's kind of... Uh, several steps forward in several different areas, the unit counts, the AI, et cetera. And there's, the other games are quite fun, but there's nothing quite so unique about them. Um, right. So we'll see. Hopefully in the next two, three months, um, I'll kind of know what the viability of that is. I'd like it to go there. I think it has a, an excellent shot of going there, um, but it's just kind of early to say. We didn't do any marketing in advance uh, of actually releasing. So, you know, our, our first two weeks of having the product out, there's just, you know, crickets. I think we had like three sales, right? Because like nobody sure. knew where we were. And then uh, we caught a lucky break with one distribution place, uh, Stardox Impulse, which they uh, actually are a distribution channel for more than just games. They also have uh, like other applications and stuff there for Windows. And um you know, uh, submitted to a number of these places. Most of those are still pending, but with uh, Impulse, uh, some staff member there saw the message, played the game, liked it, and kind of accelerated it through. So then once we got on their platform, then it's like, okay, here come the real sales. Now we're actually, you know, visible to, you know, a larger audience. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, even with that, it's just, I don't think anybody can survive on just one particular platform, though. I really love the Impulse platform and the people at Stardock are awesome, but it's just. When you say uh, platform, a, you mean like a distribution channel? Or what, do you, what do you mean by that? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a distribution channel. So they do uh, a lot of the actual uh, digital distribution of, uh, you know, updates as well as original versions, demos, all that sort of thing. And, you know, they have their own e-commerce uh, system and all that sort of thing. So they handle pretty much everything as a reseller and, uh, you know, give us our, our royalties back. And so uh, we also have our own e – go ahead. Well, okay. So if you're if you're if you're going to start your own video game com or company, or you know, like just like you're doing, and I mean, what about like a PR effort? I mean, aren't there a lot of gaming magazines? I mean, every time I seem to go into like the bookstore, there seems like there's always a lot of magazines dedicated to computer games and like getting covered. Oh yeah. I mean, if you yeah. want that effort at all. Uh, well, you know, for getting coverage in those. Uh, and as far as the websites and stuff go, a lot of times those magazines have websites where there's website counterparts that have pretty much the same function. It's kind of hit or miss uh, when you are an indie developer. There are some prominent uh, uh, contests, and there's an independent gaming festival and so forth uh, that you know we missed for this past year. That was in March, and you know we weren't at all ready by that point. But you know we'll go for that next year. Um, if you do well at the independent gaming festival or whatever, it's like doing well at the independent film festival, uh, you know, you start getting noticed and getting more mainstream coverage. Um, that's been really our challenge right now is trying to get more mainstream coverage. It's happening, but it's slow um, just because it has to kind of let the word of mouth build and they see the reviews on some of the smaller sites and, oh, those are positive. Maybe I should look at this for real and so forth. You, you know, when you've got... 
it's not like regular software development where you just kind of hang your shingle out and then whoever wants to can just come and pick up that one thing. Uh, you really have to kind of prove that yours is actually a real product with the game uh, uh, industry, which is which is a little bit different. So um, that's kind of the stage that we're in. You know, people say, okay, it's a real product, but do I really want to look at it? There's a lot of indie games, a lot being like sure. 200 some, but um, you know, more than anybody can just look right. at it in a routine fashion. So. so it sounds like you're in a typical situation of most startup software, which is like you came up with something that you to solve your own problem that turned out to be pretty cool that you like that you have that that you have a sort of an uh, an early adopter a group of early adopters that like it and so now you just got to figure out how to sort of improve it and get out the mainstream and so I guess that's just the first you know year or so of that's what what we all go through so that'll be really interesting to see I mean the the game itself has like I said the like and you've, you've discussed has some really interesting aspects to it. the cooperative play against some emergent AI is really interesting so. Um, with the emergent well, AI, when you have, let's say, for example, you had a hundred thousand ships, um, would each of those ships sort of have the capability to think on its own, or is it the, the AI sort of control large swathes of ships? Is that the way it works? Um, in most RTS games, you do get grouping logic uh, for the um, uh, batches of ship or units that are near one another. Uh, that's part of why this is emergent: is they don't. Um, get controlled in groups really, I won't say ever, but almost never. And the, there's several different levels to the AI in this, uh, as far as like uh, multiple subsystems. Uh, there's some kind of overall strategic AI that uh, makes some kind of grand decisions about where to route like big batches of new ships. Um, you're playing across multiple planets, so you can think of it as kind of individual battlefields. So it's not like there's 100,000 ships at one planet roaming all around. You probably have got you know 5,000 at, at, at absolute most roaming around at, at an individual planet. Um, but there might be you know multiple planets at once that are all contested and you know big battles that are splitting your attention, especially in multiplayer. Um, so you got the strategic uh, level of the AI, which is very centralized. It's in a lot of ways pretty traditional. It looks at the board, figures out where units are best needed, et cetera, and puts them there. It uses some fuzzy, fuzzy logic and so forth, which is uh, interesting because it makes the AI, even at that level, not predictable. Um, but then you've got the tactical level of AI, which at a planet, what does each individual ship do? That's all 100% per ship, but they kind of watch each other. So if you're familiar with flocking algorithms, it's kind of that same sort of idea, but not applied to movement at all. It's applied to their like target acquisition and that sort of thing. Um, and uh, so you wind up with flocking type movement sort of uh, based on, you know, okay, I want to go attack that target. So therefore I need to go towards that target first. Um, but that's where, that's where you get the emergence is by them mostly acting independently, but also valuing what each other are doing. And sort of sounds like some of the stuff that they're doing in Hollywood where for crowd scenes in like, for example, the movie 300, when they have the crowd scene, each of the individual little guys running around in the crowd scene sort of has their own little piece of intelligence and they can do different things, random stuff. Not not so much random, but they, you know, they they, they have a pattern and a character. But then they also have an overall control of, of where they move. Absolutely. Yeah, it's very similar to that. And you can really 
you know, random is important with stuff like that, right? Because you don't want to script all that out and you don't want them to act too predictably. Um, that's one surprising thing that I learned um, with developing out this game AI uh, is that the best choice strategically or, you know, otherwise in the example you gave from the movies uh, is not always necessarily the best choice. You want them to make uh, close to the best choice <laughs> within a certain, you know, range of possible choices that are good but not necessarily the 100% best and that makes them unpredictable um, because you know in real life uh, with humans with regular sort of uh, crowd groups the best choice isn't always made it's uh, if the best choice is made it's predictable and it seems very uh, mechanical it doesn't seem real at all uh, when you've got that variance of uh, choices there that are being made then you get the uh, this one batch of guys splits off and does this one objective. This other batch of guys goes off towards the, probably the primary objective. And so suddenly you've got them doing uh, things you didn't think that they would do, you know, uh, striking you in unpredictable patterns that actually turn out to be more difficult than the base, the, the basic best choice ever would have been. You know, you know what this reminds me of? There's a couple things. I mean, I want to follow up on the on the sort of randomization or, or fuzzification of um, of actions and stuff. But one thing is like the, the whole the hierarchy of decision making. So you have like a commander and sort of sub commanders, then lower level tactical things. I mean, in one sense, you know, most military campaigns have to work in that way of generals and colonels and majors and captains and all the way down. And you get these sort of general um, orders from up top, and they get implemented more specifically by the lower ranks. And I remember reading an article not that long ago, I think popped up on the Hacker News, and uh, it was talking about how in World War II, one of the reasons that the Germans were so successful is that they gave their commanders and field marshals and people lower uh, and down the ranks more autonomy to make decisions as they saw fit. And so they they were so much faster. And I think they called their style of attack a, um, a blitzkrieg, wasn't it? It was like a, a storm attack right. or meaning, meaning that they just, because with the autonomy, I mean, like, the guy, if, if, if the orders are, you know, take this, you know, you know get this r river secured or take this, you know, hill or do whatever, and then the, and the field marshal, whoever is the next one down, says, okay, and they just do it. And they can make decisions. They don't have to continue to be calling back to headquarters, okay, what do you want me to do now? And it sounds like that, in a sense, with algorithms even, is probably more efficient, allows them to be smarter and probably faster. Yeah, definitely so. And I would say, you know, it's not even so much of go take this hill or so forth. I would imagine with the Germans, it was probably something similar too. It's more like, okay, this is your area. Do what you need to do to protect this area, right? And right. so then that field marshal is going to go there. And if the hill is of strategic importance, then they take it. If it's too hard to take the hill, then they'll probably do something else, uh, you know, to conserve their men and, you know, do the best that they can do without, you know, completely obliterating themselves you know and so forth and so on right. and uh so you wind up with well the obvious thing was for them to take the hill so you you fortified for that but that's not what they did they went over there in the trees and did something else and you know now you're in trouble because you didn't expect that and so you know so you're off guard and then you know but they're still aware of what you're doing because <laughs> you're on the hill or yeah, whatever. I, I think you're so. i think you're absolutely right about that and i mean that, that's and that makes that such that's very cool i mean so all right so let's get down let's talk a little more specifically about the ai so you you've you developed this cool emergent ai 
but you have a degree in business and you might know how to write code. So how did you learn about artificial intelligence to be able to implement something that was this cool and this cutting edge? I mean, this is, this is pretty slick stuff. And I'd really be interested to hear how you learned it and how you, not only your learning process and where you learned this stuff from, but how sort of your learning curve, what you tried. Sure. Um, well, you know, my degree is in business, but, you know, originally I started out going for a degree in computer science. And uh, then, you know, I was already working at Starta and, uh, you know, having great strides there and wasn't really feeling like the uh, computer science was really contributing a lot. So I decided to go, you know, for a business degree um, because, you know, as a business company, that was a, a large part of what our clients needed, right? So I still think of myself as, you know, programmer first, businessman, you know, distant second there, right? right. Um, <clears throat> but anyhow, the um, with Starta, a lot of what I do there, it's, you know, web-based system, and but it's got a, you know, big database backend. And um, a lot of what we do there is, uh, and, and this is relevant, I promise, <laughs> a lot of what we do there is uh, bringing on like reports and so forth uh, based on a large amount of accumulated data about like uh, uh, basically rental properties and doing reports about their construction, about their uh, operation for you know years after they're constructed, that sort of thing, to basically let executives know you know what is their expected revenue going to be, what is uh, the the problems that are coming up, how do they need to best you know deploy their resources, apparently you know essentially of you know money, manpower, et cetera, and um, so there's a lot of um, I guess you would call it business intelligence type uh, work there, but basically just analysis, data mining sort of stuff. And um, so this is my background, right? So then I come over here uh, to create game AI, which you know I had no clue how to do, but I had been thinking, you know, uh, okay, I see what this AI and these other games are doing. I can see the algorithm clearly now. Once I've been playing against it for a while, it's pretty obvious the algorithm it's using. Then it's like, well, you know, if it just did this and this and this differently, then it would be, you know, better, right? right. Um, so I had actually been poking around looking at the um, code for uh, the, the AI code for the game Supreme Commander is actually, it's another RTS game and it's one that I played uh, most immediately before, you know, creating AI War. I've been poking around in their AI code because it's a scriptable thing and they actually have some modders that have been uh, extending their AI uh, after their um, after their initial release um, and that's actually their AI there is getting much more impressive with the, what the modders are doing than what the original stuff had. Right. Um, but I looked at that and I said, okay, well, you know, you could add in these extra little bits here and there and it would work better. But just the entire structure of it, which is really alien to me, uh, is all finite state machine type stuff, uh, lots and lots of uh, kind of complexity between lots of different modules and classes and so forth. And, you know, it's, it's, I think it's good code. It's good for, you know, your traditional method of AI development, but, you know, as a business programmer looking at that, I'm like, wow, this looks kind of like spaghetti code, you know, the, the uh, okay. tenets of, you know, encapsulation and so forth are not being, you know, valued here. It's not good OOP design, which of course it's not supposed to be, it's supposed to be good AI design, but it just was very foreign to me. So, uh, you know, I said, wow, I, do I really want to go into all of that? Because for one thing, uh, you get 
I, I know I know from fact, just from having you know read various articles and you know interviews and so forth with other you know developers that code AI. You know, usually they have a, a person or three you know working on that for you know six months a year or something like that. You know all throughout development of of a various uh, RTS game, and you know I didn't have that you know, kind of time to really sink into it. So I had to come up with something that would be faster for me to do, that would be simpler, and that would give a better result. Because you <laughs> so had like, like six oh, months to build the whole thing, right? <laughs> well, yeah. And I, six months. Yeah, exactly. I, I, and I didn't even start working on the AI until the last three months of that period. Um, until that point, it was all player versus player, just testing out the mechanics and stuff. So, I mean, I had three months for the actual AI, which... It wasn't. It's not like I had a hard deadline or anything like that. Um, that's just kind of what it turned out to need after I, you know, passed that certain point. But uh, you know, I knew I didn't want to spend, you know, a year working on this AI before it was even basically playable, right? Yeah. So I experimented around, you know, for the first couple of weeks with more traditional methods and really hated it. It just like it what? Like what are some of the traditional methods that you tried? Traditional methods such as just uh, trying to control things as a group. Uh, trying to make a big uh, finite state machine to control absolutely every aspect of what they're doing. And, you know, if this scenario comes up, then you guys all need to act in this particular way together, um, you know. And that, uh, it, it, it's a lot of anticipation with that sort of approach. You have to think of everything in advance. And of course, you're not going to think of everything in advance, so that ultimately there's going to be holes somewhere. The players will eventually find those holes and they will start exploiting them to uh, uh, you know, basically unfairly win. My, my favorite example of that is in pretty much any RTS game from the last 10 years. I mean, I don't know about all of them, but all the ones I've played, there's a flaw. <laughs> pretty fatal flaw in the AI where if you've got walls, um, you build a wall around your uh, base basically to protect yourself. And uh, if you do that, then the AI is going to come over, you know, kind of probably decide where the weak point is, or maybe just come straight at the wall and try and smash through it. And, you know, you've got problems with it going all over the place usually, right? So it's very difficult. But if you leave just a little bitty hole up in one particular corner, the AI goes, oh, there's a hole in the wall. That's where we'll go. We'll do, we can just walk there. We don't have to beat down the wall, right? And so you can put, right. you know, the apocalypse there. They don't care. You put, you know, these giant cannons and stuff. They're like climbing over the bodies of the guys that came <laughs> first to get through that little <laughs> hole because this is the easiest way to go, right? And all of these games do it programmed by all of these different people, right? And I looked at that and said, you know, I'm going to have the same problems, right? You know, even if I fix that specific problem, there's going to be something else. People, you know, players are smart. They figure stuff out. If there are holes, they find them. So I need something that's really modular that I can extend easily if they do find a hole, which, you know, and that, that has fewer holes, you know, from the start. I have so, a question. Go ahead. Yeah. Do, you ha do you use any neural net stuff with, with, with your AI? I actually don't, you know, that comes into the whole thing of I'm not really an AI programmer per se. And I've, you know, I have a book called AI by, for Game Developers by O'Reilly, which I bought around the time that I started looking at the AI uh, for AI War. And I read through that whole thing and said, oh, yeah, lots of interesting things here and, you know, the fuzzy logic and all that. And I saw the neural nets aspect but said, you know, that looks a little bit overcomplicated for my purposes here. If I wanted to make something that really thinks then yeah, that's what I need to do. What I need to do is make something that convincing, convincingly seems to think. It's a very different 
sort of problem to tackle, right? It's, uh, you know, the academic or like making a real robot uh, uh, approach versus what you need to have for a game. It's all a simulation. Well, that's kind of... That's kind of how uh, innovation happens a lot of time, right? You have someone come along, often outside the the field or, or something, and look. And instead of taking doing what everyone else does, they look at the first principles and says, "Okay, what are we really trying to do here? You know, what am I? What do I really want? I mean, there's all these tools that other people have created. I, I may, or, you know, and, and you may or may not understand them, or even want to have to deal with them. You just say, "I'm just going to look and figure out and give a shot at this." And I think. Um, I think the guy who created the Palm Pilot, initial hand recognition, did kind of the same thing. He went and tested out what they people were doing. He said, oh, this sucks. I could just code something up better than this, just using common sense. And it kind of, kind of it sound, reminds me of what you've done, which is just sort of looking at the problem itself and what you really needed. And you said, all right, I'm just going to, you know, do something that just sort of makes sense from a, looking at what the goal is. I mean, is that is that fair to say something like that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, uh, yeah, I looked at what was there and I wasn't really all that happy with it. I, you know, I knew it was going to take me a long time just to learn what all was going on there and then to duplicate it and then to code it out and then to code out all the possible use cases. And I said, you know, let me see if I can do something just simpler first. And that, the, the method that I wound up chose, choosing, um, you know, I had a fairly formidable AI in under a week. Um, and it was, you know, working tactically. And it's just like, okay, forget all that other stuff. I'm going to keep building on this, you know. And it wasn't as smart nearly as it is now, but it was, uh, you know, very promising. And and it was actually, you know, fairly functional compared to the rest of the stuff in the genre, right? Well, so, okay. so all right, let's just. I, I just want to hear in detail. Okay, so what? So what is it you told? So if you had to describe the algorithm, um, you know, in simple terms, what does it do? How does it work? Um, okay, so I mean, there's multiple algorithms. The one I'm going to really address, because this is the one that's more uh, unique here, is the tactical algorithm, which is basically individual units or groups of units deciding how they're going to, you know, strike a particular uh, planet. Right? It's basically your example of, you know, the, the Germans on the hill. Um, and what that algorithm basically does, um, I'm, I'm using. Uh, Link, which I guess you're probably familiar with, uh, this is Microsoft's new like language integrated query uh, stuff. And, and essentially, um, for people who don't know, it's like it's it's almost a way of writing uh, sort of SQL like using SQL like syntax integrated with your code to query objects with their which are in certain types of containers. Is that kind of how it works? Exactly, exactly. Um, and my background's in T-SQL as much as anything else, and I really like that language, and I'm really used to the, doing that for you know data mining type purposes, so it's a natural fit. Um, so <clears throat> the uh, thing that was interesting that I think I kind of stumbled into with my use of Link, which is not inherent to Link itself, but just an algorithmic type discovery, is that um, I can make soft decisions with uh, that if you're familiar with SQL coding at all, you've got essentially uh, an order by clause, right, where you're trying to evaluate some sort of data store, and then you're getting it back, and then you want to order that data so that it, you know, is in some particular um, uh, order that's relevant. In this case, you know, best targets or sort of best targets or whatever. Um, 
in any sort of sorting algorithm, you can do that, but it's really easy to write in a SQL type syntax because you can have so many different layers of it. So you say order by, okay, thing with the most health, then thing with the uh, that I can do the most damage to, then uh, thing that is closest, uh, then thing that is uh, least likely to do a bunch of damage to me, then thing that's, uh, you know, least surrounded by other stuff that's dangerous, you know, and so forth and so on, right? So um, that's not specifically the order that I have. Actually, I have posted some of that code on the uh, on my blog so people can look at it. Um, but essentially, you wind up with a bunch of different uh, order by case statements that uh, it falls through whichever ones, you know, fail and orders by um, whichever ones succeed. So it's... Um, essentially a way to express uh, soft preferences rather than hard rules. Because you've just got a, a if-else structure all throughout your uh, logic, that's very hard. You know, it's going to do one or the other of these. And if you've got an else branch that um, basically should fall under several different kinds of ifs, that's where you get into that whole kind of tree structure that gets really wide really quickly. And you've got... Uh, you know, if this and this and this, then do this. And you're either doing go-tos or a lot of code duplication, and it gets very messy very quickly and very hard to keep track of. With uh, link-type syntax, you wind up with something that's, you know, 10 lines of code. It's very easy to see and understand what it's doing because it's all right on the screen in front of you, and you've just got this order by, and it's essentially kind of, in a logical sort of sense, creates a tree even though it's not. And... Um, I had a couple of AI programmers point that out to me that, hey, that's kind of like a tree, basically. And it's like, well, yeah, it's not really that different except the soft preferences, and hey, I can read it. Um, so now and, when you say soft preferences, what is that? How, how are you implementing soft preferences? I mean, is it just a matter of like there is a bit of randomness that you put in with every um, clause, that whether that's going to evaluate to true or not, or what's the what makes it soft? Well, okay, that is a very good point. Um, I think I use that a little bit erroneously uh, in, in one sense of uh, it really lets you fall through um, cases that are not evaluating to the success uh, state, basically. And so you wind up with a uh, pseudo tree that's actually uh, linearly coded so you wind up with something that i would prefer to do that I, I will do this if i can if i can't then i fall down to this if i can't then i fall down to this etc 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 certainly fuzzy logic is uh the randomization is a factor in that on key things where you want to have it have some natural variance to it yeah throw in some randomization and then that makes it even softer of a preference um because it sounds but, like it sounds like with all the clauses, those are actually almost like, like the way a, a fuzzy logic controller works. If I remember correctly, is that you have a bunch of rules in which whichever ones um, have their was it their antecedents um, um, qualify as uh, to fire. Like they have to, you evaluate the the antecedent clauses to see okay, you know which how true is this statement, and if it reaches a certain truth threshold after with a cutoff value of like 0.7 out of uh, 0 to 1 normalization, then that rule will kind of value to true. And then you evaluate a bunch of rules and then you have some kind of defuzzification process or, or you have some kind of first, you have a way of determining which one of those rules fires and then you defuzzify the value and create an actual value. And it sort of right. sounds like, now I haven't, I haven't really uh, screwed, I used to uh, 
I, I wrote some fuzzy logic code and did some of that stuff back in the, you know, 15 years ago. So it's been a while. I'm a little uh, fuzzy on it now. <laughs> uh, but uh, that's the way I remember it. It almost reminds me of a, like you've implemented sort of uh, something that's like a, a fuzzy logic controller, even though you're not explicitly using a fuzzy logic controller system. Yeah, absolutely. That that sounds uh, very much in line. You know, I read up about the general ideas behind fuzzy logic and then just did my own thing. I don't have you know, specific rules coded out in that same way. I think it's actually a little bit briefer code the way that I've got it, which again, it's on my blog. You can look at it or your uh, listeners can look at it. But the um, it's yeah, it's really just randomization when you get down to it. There's certain thresholds and uh, you if, if you're doing a condition check, you can put on a certain amount of variance to the thing that you're checking against that condition or the condition itself. And then when you evaluate it, then sometimes it if, you know, evaluates true in the given circumstance, sometimes it doesn't, uh, but it's within certain bounds. And uh, so you wind up with unpredictability out of what would otherwise be a really predictable linear type system. So. Okay, okay. I've got a I, no, no, Justin, I, I, let me just put one question. I know I've been sort of uh, stealing the stealing the with here. I, I, I just let me ask this one more question, Justin, and I'll, and I'll give the floor to you. I just okay, sure. Okay, so um, now one thing about the AI, you know, we describe it as AI because you have rules and these things make uh, and these agents um, make certain decisions that are, you know, um, should be smart, better than random. But is there an actual learning component to it? I mean, do the agents are they able to adjust the weightings of rules or add new rules? Is there any way to augment whatever the initial intelligence was to be a learning, evolving system? Right. Well, what you're really describing there is learning AI, which is kind of a subcategory of AI as a whole. And this uh, does not implement anything like that. AI word is not. Um, but. Uh, and, and really, I don't know of any RTS game or really any mainstream commercial game that does. Um, it's something that players all talk about wanting, and I think it's very cool, um, but not my players. They seem to be pretty happy, but I mean, just you read on message boards and so forth around players complaining. Yeah, about I mean, it. I mean I there's wish. no reason to do it, I mean, unless you need it. I mean, if the AI works well enough, then great. I mean, it's a cool thing, but it sounds like your AI actually works. It doesn't need to learn. So then the the question is, how did you develop the rules in the, in the first place? I mean, how? I mean, did you run some simulations? I mean, what did you do to come up with the rules that made sense uh, that would work? Did you just use common sense and did you stick in a bunch of rules as a player, kind of code what you would think as a as a as someone who's controlling a ship? You know, what you'd want it to decisions you want to make or what? Right. Basically, a combination of common sense and then just lots and lots of playtesting. Uh, you know, and the fact that I've been playing RTSs and my group has been playing RTSs uh, for you know ten years plus uh, on such a regular basis um, in so many different RTS games, it's not like we just got pigeonholed into one particular system. We've had a chance to see a lot of you know what's become commonalities, what is uh, you know what were kind of outlier things that other people had done that worked well or worked poorly. And so, you know, having that experience to draw upon was really helpful. Um, I would say uh, on your last point there, you know, even though this isn't a learning AI, it is somewhat of an adaptive AI because mm -hmm. it's got s these kind of soft rules in there. And it doesn't even need necessarily to add a rule to do something completely unexpected. Um, when players do something really weird, like they're using some sort of strategy that I didn't think of in advance, the AI evaluates what they're doing and does something 
it's not really what I wouldn't call it a mirror of what they're doing, but it's something appropriate in response, right? It's evaluating mm -hmm. its rules. They've changed the situation in such a way that it's going to have to uh, to do something different. And so then the AI does something that nobody's ever seen before. So you get uh, unpredictability uh, out of it that way and something that seems like it's learning based on what you're doing, but really it's just reacting to the current. So it's acting like a slippery of... fish. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I see. So Justin, you go ahead. I'm sure you have some questions queued up now. Well, just because... Um... Just, just wanted. I mean, I wanted to bring it back a little bit from the tech because I know we we got quite deeply into tech there. I'm just, I mean, just on a more personal level. I mean, you've you've achieved a lot, but it sounds like you want to achieve a lot more. And I'm interested to know where you're going. You know, what what you think you're going. What does the next two years look like for you? Well, that's a very interesting question, and a lot of that really depends on, you know, <laughs> what the customers let me do. Right, as far as. Uh, you know, if sales are really good, then uh, I'm going to have a fair amount of freedom, uh, you know, creative and technical, technically to explore some interesting things in uh, other other games and various genres and so forth. I'm not uh, inherently only interested in the strategy uh, genre. Uh, I don't really plan on making any more strategy games for a while. AI War is going to continue to grow. Um, and uh, I've got, you know, plan on doing lots of expansions. I'm running, you know, a free extra content campaign have been for a couple of months now. And that's been really uh, popular. And I plan to keep on doing that uh, regardless of, you know, how commercially successful it turns out to be. You know, so that's kind of my strategy game, you know, for probably the next five years or so. Um, beyond that, it's just a matter of going to other other genres and seeing what I can do differently there. I like really kind of combining things from multiple other genres that aren't, uh, you know, inherent in the genre I'm supposedly working in. So there's something that I'm surprised about with, and I, that I would have thought would have been taken hold by now more than it has, which is basically virtual reality games. I mean, we've, we've got the technology, you know, to, to make virtual reality. We've got the hardware, uh, to make virtual reality games interesting, and I'm just surprised that the, that they're not um, really in the mainstream. I wonder how long it's going to be before we get really good virtual reality stuff going on. I mean, that's a good question. I mean, when you say we've got the hardware, we as the human race do, but yeah. you know, as a consumer level product, I don't think it's really there as a uh, something that's affordable. And, but I don't know, know why that I don't know why that's the case because to buy a pair of glasses for your PC, you know, you can get them for a hundred bucks, you know, like right. glasses which so so that's the glasses and then the set the sensor the sensor the motion sensor stuff is you know probably another hundred bucks or whatever. So right. you've, so you, the input devices clearly aren't that expensive. I mean, there's no reason why Sony or uh, or we th those guys couldn't you know start making these things. Why don't they do oh, it? Sure, absolutely. It's just going to take a, a really big developer, a really large company to do that because they're going to have to have a marketing push that says, hey, people, you want this extra input device or whatever. I mean, that's basically what the Wii has done. And, you know, for everybody else that doesn't have that sort of marketing budget or uh, R&D budget even, you know, sure, we could write some code to virtuality virtual reality glasses and there are some people you know college students or just random other programmers that are doing stuff like that as kind of a hobby but um you know who are they going to sell a product to if they were to actually put in the time to 
to build out a product. I mean, I think the only way you're going to see that out of a small company is if they build it for themselves because they think it's cool. And then they say, well, let's see who will buy that. And then maybe in turn that will spur some more sales of, you know, the hardware. So that then more people have hardware, more software gets made for it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah. right now you got that chicken and the egg, uh, problem and you need some sort of large company like Sony or Nintendo to, to be able to say, here's the chicken and the egg together. I we're guess the, the, hardware. I guess the classic industry where this would come from would be the porn industry actually, who, who do tend to sort of push new, new frontiers for that type of thing. That's true. That's true. Of course, if you, you do speak polls, of personal experience, uh, Justin, <laughs> no, no, but I, but I've just, I just can't help but notice that the, the, the porn industry really does push the technical, technical limits, especially, you know, like they, 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 they had e-commerce sussed, you know, long before other people did, you know, mm-hmm. and, and they, they, they're always technically, you know, ahead of the game. That's because people will pay for sex, I guess, one way or another. Yeah. So, um, So I have a question for you on on a slightly different uh, technical issue, though, which is, you know, you wrote a couple, uh, at least you wrote one article about um, the optimizations that you used to make to allow this thing to run, control, you know, tens of thousands of ships, and to run on a a fairly, um, you know, modest server, and you know, just or actually, yeah, our, our host machine, whichever is hosting the game. So I'd like to talk just a little bit about that. I mean, the whole you're. You wrote this in C Sharp on .NET, correct? Correct. And so that's um, so it'd be interesting to hear, you know, kind of how you attack the problem and how you went about optimizing it. You know, your threading and, and everything. Sure. Um, well, you know, before working on this project, I had never done too, too, too much uh, optimization work in C Sharp. I mean, I most of my optimization work had been, again, database related in the past, and that's obviously very optimization heavy. It's a very similar sort of uh, environment there because you've got um, some sort of intermediary language essentially that is being compiled to and then it may act a little bit differently than you had been expecting uh you know there's other stuff going on there's garbage collectors going on there's other internal optimizations that may be going on kind of behind the scenes you know and things like that so you just have to kind of uh do a little bit of profiling look at you know where your uh problem spots are i i am a weird programmer in that I really don't use debuggers at all. Um, I <laughs> got into that habit with, you know, assembly and HTML and so forth, and then just never got out of it. I've never really seen the need for debuggers per se. Um, I tend to uh, just write little check code and so forth, which of course gets removed when I'm actually releasing a product. Um, and then, you know, just do little uh, timing checks and that sort of thing. There's a little stopwatch class in .NET that you can use to, you know, click on, click off, see. So you're saying that many... you don't actually use a built-in profile, a profiler. You just use exactly, it. yeah, just by hand profiling as far as, uh, you know, putting, seeding in some little checkers and then seeing what sort of results you get back. Uh, you know, you write some sort of little debug output uh, algorithm. Pretty much how I do it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there are a number of programmers that do it, but I think we're in the minority. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah. And um, so just through that process, seeing, okay, well, this is really expensive. This is really cheap in terms of CPU. So, you know, what else can I possibly do? How can I, uh, you know, cash values or uh, minimize the number of times that I'm going to have to actually check this per second, that sort of thing. And, um uh, 
you know, with the threading and so forth, uh, that was something that what I found was just keeping the interface between the two threads as narrow as possible, which there's more than two threads, but the two ones that are really uh, busy are, you know, the main game logic slash display thread and then the AI thread. And there's other stuff for, you know, sound and network and stuff, but those are fairly straightforward. By okay, comparison. so you're only, you don't, you're not having a thread for each AI agent. You just have one thread that loops. Oh, no, no. Agents. Okay. Right. Exactly. Uh, there's not really a solid reason to have more than. In fact, there's several reasons not to have multiple threads in that sense because, you know, your uh, objects in memory are basically probably should be per thread. You can get away with not doing it that way and then just having lots of lock statements or whatever to say, all right, I'm touching this now, please don't touch it. Okay, I'm touching this now, please don't touch it. What you get into is a lot of blocking, and that's something that's Semifles. very. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but you're, yeah, Justin, you know that stuff. I, I did a, I, I recently worked on a project with a, a friend of mine, um, and we had to write some. We were trying to write, take advantage of the multiple cores on the server, and uh, it was just all in .NET, and um, you know it is really, really hard to beat uh, one thread when you're, you know, pushing these stuff up on separate threads, especially if, if not a lot of work is getting done for each call. Because of all the context switching and blocking and everything like that, we end up having we end up writing our own thread pool, which end up being a lot faster than the built-in thread pool and, and locks and stuff. And uh, it's still, we ended up just saying screw it. It's just not. It just doesn't beat running it serially. Right. And the main thing is, you, the the scale that you're talking about in a game like this is similar to the scale you have in a database. You know, in a database, it's a small query if it's returning a million rows or something, right? I mean, here you're running just millions of calculations per second about range checks, about checking this and that and the other properties. There's all these things to constantly check. You have to do locks on each one of those constantly on two different threads accessing the same thing. I mean, it just grinds to a halt pretty well instantly. Uh, you can do that, you know, if you've got uh, something that's not doing quite so many checks on these sorts of properties and and uh, you know method calls and so forth, but it just uh, it just bogs down too quickly. So the game actually builds uh, two different memory structures, one on the AI thread uh, and one on the main thread, and then it updates the AI thread you know every so often, uh, you know a few times a second with a lot of the most recent data as far as state changes and so forth. And the AI thread. Uh, analyzes that independently, and then every second or so will issue uh, commands. Um, I don't know if you know much about how to uh, about programming of uh, like network-based multiplayer applications in general, but games in particular. You often have you know kind of a command structure where you uh, issue a command, it gets sent out to the server or whatever, and then executed. Um, it's kind of a asynchronous process from you actually issuing it. I figured, why not do the same thing with the AI? Uh, why why have it be uh, so tightly integrated? Uh, why not just treat it like there's another player sitting at a computer? He's sitting on another thread. It may as well be another computer as far as the simulation is concerned. And he just lobs his uh, you know requests in there, same as a player clicking the mouse or hitting the button does. Um, and so that lets me run it just on the host, which is another, um, the host is another player of the game, just like any other player. It's a peer-to-peer -peer type application, but one is designated as the host and the AI runs there only. Usually with games like this, it runs everywhere simultaneously, which 
upset system requirements for the non-host computers. So. Right. So the um, you know, it's kind of funny. It's like this. The the, the part of this problem reminds me of uh, you know of Erlang as a potential solution. We talked to an episode. I think it was four. We talked to Joel Ramont, and he's an was an expert, in, or he is an expert in uh, Erlang, and you could just run hundreds of thousands of sort of threads. Um, or processes, I guess they weren't in a process. So you could actually solve this problem in Erlang, I suppose, and every agent or every ship has, is running as its own process. I mean, it may not make a difference because it sounds like you already solved it but um, in, in your own way, but it's such an interesting. That's, this is the kind of thing you could solve in a completely different way using a tool like Oh, Erlang. yeah. I mean, I think there are so many different ways you can potentially solve this problem. You know, and I work with the tools that I have specifically for this, but there are you know, we're scratching the surface. We've been seeing all these crazy increases in, uh, you know, graphics over the last number of years in games. But I really think that at some point, hopefully fairly soon, we're going to see, you know, other types of advances like with the AI and using these other sorts of methods and so forth. So I think there's a lot of room for experimentation there. You know, one thing you talked about was the using um, uh, fixed point rather than floating point math. So, you know, you, in order to speed up the uh, as an optimization, right? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, one thing that is very powerful or one is a good solution that is using these new GPUs or graphical graphic uh, graphical processor units. Um, and I don't know if you've if you've read much of that, this or experimented with it, but I think NVIDIA and what, what's the competitor to NVIDIA, the other big graphics card manufacturer? ATI. ATI, right. They each have come up with their own, I think this is called the Stream API, and they each come up with their own way that you can leverage the power of these, uh, of the graphics cards themselves, which actually can form um, many gigaflops of processing power way outperform your CPU if you can code it up. And now they've Created it so that you didn't, because what you would have to do is say you had some game logic, you would have to translate the logic into things that the graphics card understands, like, I don't know, textures or whatever. And now they've come with these APIs where you don't even have to do that, where they've abstracted the whole thing. And in fact, NVIDIA has created some card, and I can't remember what it's called, it's, but it, it has like, it's like a, about a thousand bucks, 800 bucks. You can buy them online anywhere from like, you know, Tiger Direct or whatever, and uh, just slot it in where you would put like your video card in one of your, um, you know, one of the slots in your computer. And it has like 800 gigaflops near a teraflop, like like supercomputer power. Wow! So you're talking. So you're talking about. So when Jess is talking about like virtual, um, compu- you know, environment, virtual games and the power. I mean, these GPUs are unbelievable. I mean, they are. And now when you're talking about like 800 gigaflops or teraflops, because I initially was researching this for another project I was working on, and I had read about some scientists, uh, I can't remember what university they did, but they wired together eight or 16 like um, PS3s, and they were, they were able to achieve like 40 or 80 gigaflops, you know, by doing it. And I'm like, oh, that would be so cool to go buy like, you know, eight used PS3s and just kind of wire them up and, and create this sort of little super Jason. Mm-hmm. Um just just talking about that and the power of that i've i've got a question for you guys just just mm-hmm. stick a finger up in the air and give me give me your thoughts on this how long how many years do you think it is before we're going we have sentient a, a sentient ai oh jeez if ever uh, i don't know 100 100 years you think jason well i mean i think the thing the thing about all that is that it's just really hard to determine um what uh 
what you mean by sentient. I mean, what qualifies as sentient, and that's always, that'll be a big debate. So even if you achieve certain levels of intelligence or ability to learn, you know, if it, you know, and still it might not seem smart to certain people. I mean, it'll probably be a long period of just debating at some point. Well, it's not really. Or even if it does seem smart, is it really? You know, what really constitutes that? Because a lot of like what I'm doing with games and what probably most other game developers are going to do is really not terribly relevant for creating true sentience. I mean, I guess to a certain extent, we've got, you know, random synapses firing and so forth in our brains that might add some unpredictability to our behavior or, you know, other environmental factors that, you know, chemicals and stuff that affect our brains and how we think. But there's some other stuff going on there, too, that, um, you know, I would, very... I would have thought that, I mean, theoretically, it seems, well, I mean, the, the, the brain is, is, you know, mechanical, essentially. I mean, I would have thought that, that at some stage in the future, they'll We'll, we'll get to a point where we can mimic. We essentially reverse engineer it, right? I mean, yeah, sure. exactly. Finite reverse amount of matter, brain, and you yeah. can sure reverse it. And I think, but that's that's a fundamentally different approach from modern AI programming or what I'm doing. That's a very at this stage academic sort of pursuit, just because it doesn't have we don't have quite the processing power for it to really uh, to make something useful out of it. I, if I recall, I seem to. Uh, I don't remember where I read this, but a few months ago I read about uh, them simulating a, a rabbit brain, uh, basically just like what you're describing. But it took them, you know, like a you know big supercomputer to just simulate the rabbit, and uh, you know they, you know, basically pretty much made rabbit behavior out of that brain. But uh, you know the human brain's a lot more complicated. We don't have supercomputers just sitting around all over the place for that sort of. Uh, because I you know, know that activity. they've done things like um, meld rat brain cells with uh, with chips <laughs> and mm, get yeah, get I've chips to talk too. to them. So I, yeah, I don't know. There, there was a big um, there was a, a a great talk, one of the TED talks about one of these professors, and they were simulating an ant's brain and okay. uh, the intelligence of an ant, and it would take a huge amount of processing power, all these supercomputers or whatever, to actually just be as smart as an ant or something like that. <laughs> And I mean, you so, can go yeah. on TED Talks and, and look at it. I mean, you know, uh, it, I, I don't remember the title, but it was, it was really cool. It was right about that. But it just shows you how much processing power is required to do this stuff. Now, at the same time, you say, well, processing power is increasing dramatically. And even if we bu bump up against Moore's Law, we have things like quantum computers or organic computers. And there will always probably be new innovative ways to get around that. So – you know, that whole X, you know, Greg Kurzweil always talks about that, the, the understanding of the exponential, like people always tend to under, underestimate progress in certain, because humans inherently don't have a good feel for the exponential, the power of the exponential functions. So for instance, it was like the human genome project, like I, there was like halfway, like, I can't remember how long the project was, it was like a 10 year project or whatever it was. And like halfway through, they were like 1% done or something like that. And a lot of the scientists were getting really depressed about that. Like, oh, we're never going to make it, you know? And it turns out they're right on, they're right on target. And in fact, they actually finished beforehand because computing power increased so much in the in the interim that they were able to sequence the human genome before. So if we start saying, well, you know, where are we in terms of computing power? It's like, well, the computing power will grow so much faster. And then not only that, our tools and understanding will build on that. So, That's why a hundred years seems a bit of a long way off for me. Cause it's still, because there, the reason I would say that is because every time people start predicting in artificial intelligence, they're always mm. wrong. <laughs> so I would be safe and say it's way off. Oh, you'll be safe. What would yeah. you say, Chris? You know, it really depends on the hardware, I think. the It's hard for me to answer what are, where I think the actual uh, uh, 
uh, end result is going to be because it's also dependent on the hardware. And it seems like we are seeing a bit of a change in how our hardware is uh, improving because we're having to go to some really new uh, technologies, you know, the multiple core stuff and potentially the quantum stuff before we're really going to see the improvements we need. So I think that um, it's a little bit aggressive to assume that those are going to proceed on a schedule that has, yeah. you know, matching our silicon uh, improvements. But what I will say is that I think that once we have the hardware in place and we're trying to simulate, let's say, an actual brain versus like things a brain might do, uh, I think that the software will come together way faster than anybody thinks it will, just because um, once you have the hardware in place, the software is surprisingly simple. Uh, you know, that's kind of what I was finding with emergence here. It won't think like a human probably because it doesn't have the same sort of human inputs of you know the body and so forth, right? We get all this sorts of sensory input that this other brain that we're would be theoretically creating wouldn't have, but if you've got some simple rule sets in there, you're going to start seeing emergent intelligence or seeming intelligence pretty quickly if the hardware is there. Yeah, you know, I got a couple of interesting things that I think to say about that. Um, one is, um, you know, the the Psych Project CYC, which uh, is uh, Douglas, I think I don't know how to Douglas Lenat or L-E-N-A-T. Um, and they've been encoding for, I don't know how long it's been, 10 or 15 years now, this this sort of database of common sense so that um, an intelligence, a machine can work on, you know, intelligent software can work on this sort of gigantic database of, of sort of common sense or basic principles of understanding that would be hard to, to sort of glean if you're not out moving around and, and experimenting in the real world. You're stuck inside a box somewhere. And it turns out, Douglas, this the same guy, Douglas Lenat, or I'm probably pronouncing his name wrong, um, but he actually, the way this is sort of relevant or, or funny in a connection is that he created a uh, program called Eurisco or something, which won this uh, competition. There was to be a competition, you know, it used to be a, a space game, like a role playing game, like Dungeons and Dragons called Traveler. Do you remember that? You were hearing about that? I'm not familiar with it. Okay, well, the Traveler was like, it was a Dungeons and Dragons of space, and they apparently they had some, you know, yearly conference, and they had a competition that you would, you know, go out and pick all your different types of ships, and spaceships, and you would have these big battles, and it would be a tournament who would win. Well, uh, this guy, um, he created one using, he, he picked his um, uh, spaceships, or his, uh, his fleet, using a computer program he wrote, which is essentially a genetic algorithm that would that ran a bunch of simulations against itself, and then it just destroyed everybody in one, killed everybody. And then the next year it did it again, I think, and then they just outlawed it. <laughs> it's it's <laughs> just not fair. Um, but it was just funny because, in a sense, uh, it, it, you know, it was an AI in the space war thing, using picking out the kind of ships. And I guess if I remember correctly, remember the article was something like it picked lots of small, cheap, fast ships, you know, which no one had ever really done, thought differently than a human, and that's how it was able to beat humans so easily. Um, Jace, I think we're we're coming to the end of our show. Okay. Well, let me just say one more thing. Let me say one more thing. Um, the the other thing you were talking about, how getting these computers to think differently. Um, Jeff Hawkins, who was the founder of Palm Computing, and he, he wrote an interesting book called On Intelligence. And he, one reason he went and I referenced him earlier when he said he he, he tried out these handwriting hand recognition handwriting recognition. Um, uh, software and thought they sucked and kind of built his own and that was sort of the what I just got him in the direction of creating the the Palm Pilot, and 
he and he talks about in his book how he um, the reason his real love was for neuroscience, but when he would apply to go or in, 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 in artificial intelligence, but whenever he would apply to these graduate programs or t- you know and try and figure out what's you know if he could work in, in that environment, they would all basically tell him, look, we don't do what you want to do, which is trying to create software that actually works like the brain. They were either like MRIs and just reverse engineering, like, you know, what, what neurons or synapses and stuff fire, you know, based with certain stimuli, or you're, you're, you're talking about little artificial intelligence programs that are like, you know, um, business intelligence, you know, how can I learn, you know, from some data. And he ended up after, with his fortune that he made from Palm, he started something called, I think, the Redwood Institute, and it's all based on some theories and stuff that, and some software that he's um, helped create that's, that actually is supposed to work much more closely to how the brain actually works from a logical level. And so if you're talking about, um, you know, creating an artificial intelligence that actually learns, it might be something along those lines, which is something that it's, it's not a complete reverse engineering of the brain, but it's very much inspired by how the brain actually works. And then it's some really flexible software. So it's worth checking out. On Intelligence is the book. It's, very, it's worth checking out. It's pretty cool. Very cool. Redwood Center for Theoretical Neuroscience. Yes, that sounds right. That sounds right. I read the book a couple of years ago, so I'm kind of a little... But uh, interesting stuff. Well, um, Chris, it was great having you on. It was was really interesting stuff. Um, I'm going to, I think I'm going to, I'm not a game player, but I might have to play this game because it just sounds really cool. And I have some friends who are gamers, so I'm going to kind of tell them about it and I'd love to hear what they think about it. But um, yeah, and I think uh, maybe one day should go after the the whole world fighting against some massive AI. (laughs) I think that would be really good. That would be awesome. Just what you need, what you'll need is a whole server farm full of like these GPU based servers so that you can just like serve to this, serve up this massive or or simulate this massive universe of, you know, millions of ships. It's got great PR behind it as well. I mean, as a concept, you know, can the, can the world defeat this AI and the game lasts, you know, maybe the game lasts for a year and we beat the AI. Okay, cool. And then, you know, we start again and then that would be called war number two. That would be super cool. Be kind of like that World of Warcraft for combination of this. Yeah, I don't know a whole lot about how that works. Uh, that World of Warcraft world works, but people love jumping in these gigantic worlds and developing relationships and having this ongoing stuff. Yeah. But um, oh yeah, there's an any- Eve Online program that has one big persistent world to set MMO that's space based. But I think it's more about player to player interaction. If they combine some of their technology they have there with some interesting AI, that could be pretty cool. What was it called again? It's called Eve Online. Eve Online. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, uh, what you're doing anyway sounds awesome, and it's just amazing that you've done it in like seven months or whatever it was. And uh, I think it just shows it's just a good example for people to, to say, hey, look, you can build cool stuff just because you want to and you want to put some time into it and learn it. You don't have to you – know, you weren't an expert in uh, machine learning, and then you go out and just say, hey, I'm just going to build something that works, and you know, you just – did a little research, tried some stuff out, and you know, some hard working, and it worked. And uh, I think I think that's just a good lesson for people. It's like don't get too intimidated. Say, oh, I'm not an expert in that, or I'm not an expert in this, so I just can't do it. It's like, yeah, you know what? You'd be surprised sometimes. Hey, and also, Chris, will you keep us posted of how you know how your sales are going, how the company's going? 
Yeah, absolutely. Will do. Yeah, things are going well so far. So knock on wood. Hopefully they'll keep going. Yeah. <laughs> we're, 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 I, think, I think Justin and I are in the future going to have to have um, our guests on at a later date just to do a follow up, see how people are doing. Because yeah. I think we have we have uh, entrepreneurs like yourself on who are doing really interesting stuff, but they're really early on. And I'm sure like three or six months later, people listeners are gonna be like, I wonder what happened to that. I wonder how that's doing. You know? Yeah. We right. Be really here. Yeah. So, well, great. Good luck with everything, and uh, thanks so much. Thank you very much for coming on the show. It's been great. Yes. Thanks for having me. Okay, guys. So that's a wrap. We're out.